0: which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash boreyoutosleep that's try better H-E-L-P and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy You To Sleep listeners, with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash sleep. Tonight's readings comes from Galileo and His Judges, written by F.R. Veg Prosser. Published in 1889, I found this to be an amazing insight into the life and times of an amazing astronomer. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to iTunes Australia listener, 4 on Adventure. Also big thank you to E3 Lifestyle Podcast for reaching out on Instagram this week. As always, a very big thank you to the patrons and anchor sponsors that continue to support the show. I'm very grateful for your ongoing support. The podcast is completely free and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes for you. If the podcast helps... A fantastic way to say thank you is to tell a friend who might also need help with their sleep. It would also be amazing if you could leave a five-star review. It really does help out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram. At Boy You To Sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Galileo and His Judges by F. R. Veg There is no name in the annals of science which has been the occasion of so long and fierce a controversy as that of Galileo. The historian, the astronomer, and the theologian have all had a share in it. Sometimes there has been a pause in the strife, and the question has been allowed to rest, but after a while, after disputant has rekindled the embers, and the struggle has recommended. This has been the case within the last few years, some writers of considerable ability having appealed to the history of Galileo in order to give point to opinions that they wished to advance. During all this time, if there has been unfairness on one side, there have been injudicious zeal and inaccuracy on the other. These circumstances must form my apology for interfering in a dispute already so prolonged and so envenomed, and it has appeared to me that I may without presumption hope to amend the errors to which I have just alluded, if in no way other, at least by stating correctly, the facts of the case. I do not, however, undertake to write a full biography of the great philosopher, or to give a detailed account of his numerous contributions to the scientific literature of his day, I confine myself principally to those great crises in his life which have given risen to so much discussion and which have chiefly contributed to make him a name in history. Chapter 1 Before entering on any details relating to Galileo's life and works, I propose to give a brief sketch of the progress of astronomical knowledge up to this time. For without this, one cannot appreciate correctly the value of his contributions to science a value exaggerated or underrated by different writers, each according to his respective bias. The primitive conception of the earth as a vast plain with the ocean flowing around it and the solid firmament in the sky above it with the sun, moon and stars driven across by some mysterious agency, need not be noticed from an astronomical point of view. It appeared naturally in ancient poetry and in the forms of speech adopted and continued by popular usage, but it is not necessary to dwell upon it. The first astronomers with whom we are acquainted were the Greeks, though it is said by some writers that the Chaldeans and Egyptians were really the original astronomers of the ancient world, and what the Greeks knew was borrowed from them. The vast majority of men from the earliest times down to the birth of Galileo, believed that the Earth was the center of the universe, round which the sun, moon, and stars revolved every 24 hours, round which also, as careful observers had perceived, the sun had an annual motion, progressing through the various signs of the zodiac. Moreover, it had been noticed that the planets moved around the earth, though at widely differing periods. Yet there had been some few men, exceptionally gifted, who had guessed, and truly so, that the popular conception was a wrong one. It is said that the old Greek philosopher Pythagoras taught his disciples that the sun was the real center of our system and that the earth and planets circulated around it. But he does not seem to have openly and explicitly published his doctrine though the tradition of his having so taught has always existed. If he taught it, however, he stands almost alone among the ancients. There were two great authorities in particular whose opinion carried immense weight and who were both decided in holding that the earth was the centre and the sun a revolving planet. The first of these, Aristotle, has exercised an influence over succeeding generations, which is simply marvellous. How vast was the weight of his name as a philosopher in the age of schoolmen is well known to everyone who has ever glanced at the greatest work of the greatest intellect of that age, the Summer of St. Thomas Aquinas. This celebrated writer quotes him as philosopher's, in his opinion, the philosopher par excellence, and besides his general appreciation of him, as thus shown, He wrote an elaborate treatise on the astronomy of Aristotle. Nor has this influence been confined to the schoolmen. It has remained ever since, even to this day and in this country, wherein the University of Oxford, his great work on ethics is still a standard book of study. At the time of Galileo, such was the reverence felt towards his authority in Italy and in Rome, that the Parapetetici, as those who specially belonged to his school were called, were probably quite as indignant with the revolutionary astronomer for disregarding the teaching of their philosopher as for going counter to the literal interpretation of the scripture. But in pure astronomy, apart from all other philosophy, the greatest of all ancient writers was Ptolemy, who in the second century of the Christian era, wrote a work called The Almagest, which is a complete compendium of the science as known at that date, Ptolemy bravely borrowed very much of his great predecessor, Hipparchus, who has been called the father of astronomy, and who was the first to discover, to take a remarkable instance The phenomenon known as the precession of the equinoxes, involving as it does the difference in length between the solar and sidereal years. The system of Ptolemy was briefly this the heavens and the earth are both spherical in form, the earth being immovable in the center and all the heavenly motions taking place in circles. For this he gives his reasons, sound and good reasons for the spherical shape of the earth. Unsound and mistaken, however, for the denial of the earth's rotation on its axis. An opinion he evidently knew had been maintained by some persons, One important argument on this latter head being that if the earth rotated with the great velocity necessary to carry it round in one day, it would leave the air behind. He places the earth, as already said, in the center, and then the moon as the nearest planet revolving around it The next Mercury, then Venus, then the Sun, and beyond these Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, all moved in circles, but since, with the exception of the Sun and Moon, simple circles would not account for the motions. He supposes small circles in a retrograde direction forming loops upon the main circle, which he calls epicycles. Undoubtedly following in this respect, Hipparchus, who three centuries before, had struck out the same idea. It is curious that Ptolemy's arguments, as mentioned above, show clearly that in his day, There were some persons, though their names have perished, some one or two philosophers, endowed with a marvellous insight into nature, who had guessed at the true solution of the great astronomical problem, but they left no enduring mark on their age. The system of Ptolemy, accounted for all the phenomena of the heavenly bodies that could be observed without the use of the telescope. Naturally, it held undisputed sway for many generations. The first writer who revived the doctrine of Pythagoras as to the Earth's movement was Nicholas de Cusa. He was a German by birth, having in fact been born at Treves in 1401, but he was educated in Italy. He rose to a high, ecclesiastical position, and is created Cardinal by Pope Eugenius IV in 1448. His book just alluded to was entitled De Docta Ignorantia, and was dedicated to Cardinal Cesarini. The first, however, whose work obtained any great notoriety, and who upheld the doctrine that the earth revolved around the sun, was Nicholas Copernic, commonly called by the Latin form of his name. Copernicus. He too was a German born at Thorn in 1473. He studied for a time at the University of Krakow and, like Nicholas Tecusa, afterwards in Italy, and was subsequently raised to the ecclesiastical dignity of a canon. It is probable that he was not a priest, though he is frequently spoken of as such, but a canon in minor orders. In 1500, he was appointed professor of mathematics at Rome, and such was his scientific reputation that he was consulted by the Council of Lateran held in 1512 on the question of the reform of the calendar, a reform carried out later by Pope Gregory VIII. The system of Copernicus was well received at Rome, a German disciple of his, John Albert Widmanstadt, in the year 1533. The system of Copernicus was well received at Rome. A German disciple of his, John Albert Widmanstadt, in the year fifteen thirty three expounded it before Pope Clement the Seventh, and produced a very favourable impression. Nor was the favour shown to Copernicus and his teaching ever withdrawn at Rome. His great work, De Revolutionibus Orbium Colostium published, it is said, by the advice of Cardinal Schoenberg, Bishop of Kupur, was dedicated to the reigning Pope, Paul III nor does he appear to have received at any time the last rebuke or discouragement from the Holy See. He died, however, immediately after the printing of his book, in May 1543. Copernicus supposed the heavenly bodies, the earth included, to revolve around the sun in circles. But as it was evident that they did not exactly do this, he used the theory of epicycles and supposed each planet to make two revolutions in each epicycle for every revolution round the sun. The True Solution of the Difficulty was due to Kepler, who lived in the next century, and who discovered that the planets moved in ellipses. Copernicus held, and of course, held truly, that the Earth revolves on its axis, thereby causing the apparent diurnal motion of all the heavenly bodies from east to west owing to his work having been the first of any great importance that maintained argumentatively the system called heliocentric, that is to say, in which the sun is the real centre round which the planets, including the earth, revolve for the treatise of Nicholas de Cousa, does not appear to have any extensive circulation. It is usual to speak of this system as the Copernican one, notwithstanding the errors from which its great author was unable to extricate himself, and which have long since been rectified by subsequent writers so that even at this day, we retain the name. It is always useful in scientific subjects to introduce a definition, and this is my definition of the sense in which I employ the word Copernican, that it is simply as opposed to the system in which the earth is the center of the visible universe and the sun revolving about it. It is, in fact, less accurate, but more convenient than the employment of the Greek words heliocentric and geocentric to denote the two systems. Greek words, no doubt, abound in our scientific vocabulary, as the following plainly show. Astronomy, geology, geography, barometer, thermometer, microscope, telescope. But these have become naturalized in our language by long use, which heliocentric and geocentric have not yet has been. After Copernicus, there arose an astronomer of great merit, a Dane Tycho Brahe by name, who attempted to start a fresh system, a modification, in fact, of that of Ptolemy. He made all the planets revolve around the sun, and the sun, accompanied by the planets, round the Earth. He deserves great credit for his painstaking observations, but he lived just before the invention of the telescope, or at least before it was used for astronomical purposes, and therefore was under an infinite disadvantage. His chief objection to the system of Copernicus was one at which a modern astronomer would smile, but which in those days seemed very weighty, namely, the enormous distance at which you must suppose the fixed stars to be situated, if it were true. The philosophers of that age did not like to admit such a waste of space as that which must intervene between the orbit of Saturn and the stars. And on the Copernican theory, if the stars were not situated at an immense, almost infinite distance, they ought to appear to move in a way they certainly Do not. Tycho Brahe was born in 1546. His theory never made much way. It had not, I imagine, sufficient elements of probability to recommend it generally, while the subsequent invention of the telescope and the works of Kepler and Galileo coming so soon after Tycho Brahe prepared the way for that almost universal reception of the Copernican system which we have since witnessed. I shall refer later on to Tycho and his observations. Such then was the state of astronomical theories in the latter part of the 16th century, Enlightened men like Copernicus had guessed not so accurately it is true, but with a considerable approach to accuracy at the facts of the case. Tycho Brahe, who I suspect would have been converted to Copernicism if his life had been prolonged, had suggested a system of compromise not likely, in the long run, to satisfy any thoughtful mind, while the bulk of men, even the learned, adhered to the old Ptolemaic scheme. Something, however, now occurred which was destined to work, sooner or later, a complete revolution in astronomy. The telescope was invented, and at the same time, there arose a man who knew how to use it. That man was Galileo. He was not the inventor of it, for it was first constructed in Holland or Belgium, yet he had the energy and the skill to make a telescope without having previously seen one simply from the account he had heard of the instrument. The telescope that he constructed, which still bears his name, was the simplest possible. It was of a form now disused, excepting for opera glasses and for the far more powerful binocular field glasses, with which we are so familiar. But for telescopes properly, so-called an improved principle has long since been introduced. Galileo was the first man that ever, so far as we know, turned the telescope upon the heavens. How he was rewarded for his pains, we shall presently see. And I suppose to introduce a narrative of the principal events in his life, since there are no means for forming a judgment so valuable as having the facts of the case clearly before the mind. For most of the facts, I am indebted to M. Henri de whose elaborate article in the French publication known as La Revue de Questions Historiques, is of the highest value. As the author of this article has done, what I suspect very few writers on Galileo have even attempted to do, namely to inspect the documents preserved in the Vatican bearing on the process. Some of which he gives at full length. Not having myself had the same advantage, I yet feel that I am treading on safe ground when I take my facts from de Lepenoy, for there is scarcely a statement that he makes for which he does not give his authority, whether from the documents just mentioned or from Galileo's own letters, or from other trustworthy evidence. To treat of Galileo, and to pass over the events which brought him into collision with the ecclesiastical authorities, would of course be impossible, nor is it easy to touch upon these matters without having some standpoint of one's own, some principle to guide one, some basis from which to argue. I do not shrink from stating that I write from a Catholic standpoint, but without entering minutely into those subtle questions which are the province of the trained theologian. As, however, a good deal of the narrative is connected with the action of the Roman congregations, as they are termed, it may not be superfluous to explain briefly the nature of these institutions. They are formed by the selection of certain cardinals, one of them acting as prefects of the congregation to whom are added other ecclesiastics as consultors and as secretary. The Congregation of the Index, to which reference will hereafter be made, was instituted not long after the Council of Trent by Pope Street, and has for its duty, as its name implies, the pointing out to the faithful people such books as they ought to abstain from reading. The chief consulter of the index is the master of the apostolic palace, whom I shall have occasion to mention more than once in connection with that dialogue of Galileo which brought him into such serious disgrace at Rome. The Congregation of the Inquisition, I need hardly say, not to be confounded with the Spanish tribunal of that name, which was founded at an earlier period, nor with similar tribunals in other countries, was erected in 1542 by Pope Paul III. And besides, the other officials attached to it had certain theologians called qualifiers whose duty it was to give an opinion to the congregation on questions submitted to them. These two congregations, as well as several others which it is not necessary to enumerate, still exist their functions being somewhat modified by the changing circumstances of the age. Their action is for the most part confined to the matters of discipline, but they sometimes have questions of doctrine and moral obligation referred to them by the Pope, from whom, of course, they derive all authority that they possess. I do not here undertake to show advantage and utility of these congregations or of any other institutions connected with the discipline of the Catholic Church. From the remarks I have just previously made, it will be understood that I take all this for granted and that I feel justified in doing so. Those who differ from me will, I trust, excuse me when they find that this conviction on my part does not interfere with the impartial fairness of my narrative. Galileo, whom I believe to have been a devout Catholic, Would, if he were here to speak for himself, agree with me in principle, however he might complain of the action of the Roman congregations in his own individual case. We shall then, as we proceed, inquire whether this celebrated philosopher was, as some imagine a hero and a martyr of science. Or, as others think, a rash innovator, who happened by chance to be right, but who had little or nothing but vain and foolish arguments to adduce in support of his doctrines, perhaps we shall find that such critics on either side are but imperfectly acquainted with the facts of the case." And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and I hope you're ready for sleep. If you're not quite there yet, you're always welcome to listen to another book. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode. Until then, good night.